0: So this evening on the day of the winter solstice and the evening of our first day of practice, first full day of practice, I'd like to talk about the theme of the winter solstice and the theme that we've used to um, focus for this retreat, that is, the theme of embracing the dark, inviting the light, working with this uh, interplay of dark and light at this time of year. It's this very uh, special time of year right now that has been an important one in so many cultures around the world historically for uh, many, many thousands of years in indigenous traditions in traditions in Asia, Africa, the Americas, Europe. There has been this time, particularly, um, for the winter solstice in the Northern Hemisphere, this time for stopping, for reflecting, for looking into the mysteries of dark and light, and for really aligning one's life, for realigning one's life, seeing where we are at this time when the sun seems to stop, as in the etymology of the word solstice. The natural world, at least in the Northern Hemisphere, is quiet, it seems, at least on the outside. Things have slowed down. Leaves are off. The earth seems still. It's a poem by uh, John Updike about the winter. The days are short, the sun a spark hung thin between the dark and dark. The sun, a spark hung thin between the dark and dark. And yet, um, kind of curiously, in our culture, it's a time of several major frenzies. (laughs) And many of us have come off frenzies to be here and are still feeling the kind of the after effects, like we have you stopped, you know, not apparently moving, you know, Outwardly moving slowly, and the mind is called, kind of trying to find its own stopping. There's there's the frenzy of uh, shopping for the holidays, which I, I you know I heard some of the news reports as as you may have about how there's such an impact on the shopping season by the storms on the east coast. It really is getting in the way. This nature. <laughs> <laughs> and and there's also, interestingly, we, we have the New Year around this time, not exactly on the solstice, when it kind of logically would be a new year. This is really a New Year's retreat that we're doing. It's really a, a time of shift. And so around New Year's, there's also, New Year's Eve is also a big time of frenzy, people running around, doing all sorts of things. Um, a Dear friend of mine, Diana Winston, who also teaches here, wrote a quite wonderful account of kind of this frenzy. Um, it's, she, wrote, she was uh, studying what she called speed in her own life and in, in, the, in the larger culture. And this is, this is what she wrote, which is really something about that speediness and frenzy. I don't have time to write letters, read books, visit my friend, play with my little brother, kiss, touch, sigh, dance, relate, eat ice cream, make music, cook, pray, smell, meditate, take a walk, my God, make it all stop. I don't have time and it's running out and I'm Running fast and furiously, and I want it to stop. Ouch, it's painful. Why won't it stop? Can't you make it stop? My God, what's wrong with this country? Have we all gone crazy? Are we insane? We've lost touch. We've lost touch. We've got to stop this endless running about. All I want to do is slow down, just crawl into bed and rock myself to sleep. Not this craziness, not this crazy running around. I am so tired. Please, somebody, you have to... Got to help me stop. (laughs) Is that familiar? (laughs) And so for many of us we're we're using this time really to stop or at least to stop outwardly and but it's really this uh wonderful time to stop in our outward activities and really invite the mind to stop a little bit more to come to see what's there for us really to come I mean when I often um for me, I've, I think over the last 25 years, I've done retreats at this time almost every year, you know, mostly as a participant, but uh, sometimes teaching. Almost all of the 25 years, and it's, it's, at this time, maybe even more than other retreats, it's a time just to check in, what's, what's going on right now? Where am I? I remember one person in the interviews used the metaphor of digesting let me stop and digest the last year the last cycle let me see uh, where i am or even more deeply who i am really take some further view of this phenomenon we call me each of us call me or each of us each of us explore what's my next step where am i where am i in this journey and so it's this beautiful, really this beautiful opportunity to stop, to look, to listen deeply, let things settle, as John was saying. And I'm I've often for quite a while been inspired by the theme of going into the darkness because I really find it's a wonderful metaphor, really, for much of what this practice is about. And so that's what I want to talk about tonight. To see this time of year and this very retreat through the understanding of darkness and light, and and thereby let us understand a little bit better uh, what our practice is. So I want to look particularly at this sense of opening to darkness in really in four main ways. One is to be with the darkness much like the earth, that is, in terms of stopping and becoming more still. I also want to look at darkness in the sense of um, a kind of not knowing, entering the mystery cultivating a kind of openness. And thirdly, the metaphor of darkness as being able to be with difficulty. What's hard, what's sometimes painful, or is connected with suffering. And lastly, the notion of darkness as really as um, fertile, as uh, generative, as dynamic, as opening up to uh, growth and creativity. All of those qualities, the stopping and the stilling and the not knowing and the difficulties, they all have their challenges, but they all potentially let us learn, let us grow. They, they all have the potential of opening up new parts of our lives, new parts of our individual, of our collective lives. And in a way, we could say uh, that last sense of the darkness is the darkness generates light. There's light that comes out of the dark. So this first sense of uh, stopping and stillness is something that, again, we've invited. It's something that we do physically. We come to sit in this position where we don't move or when we, when we walk, we really walk with a simplicity. We, as much as possible, we don't follow that outward frenzy. We facilitate that by minimizing the input for this period of time. And some of, some of us may be feeling, you know, where am I without that input? As I mentioned, sometimes I would go back on retreats into my room and expect that I would, you know, check on my emails or check on my messages. And I don't know, how many of you have had something like that experience? You know, quite a number. It's like I go back home and I have to check, check on what's happening. We also bring a kind of, uh, greater stillness to the mind and the heart as well as the body. We do this especially really by anchoring the attention in the breath. We find an anchor for our awareness that helps us really to stop all the comings and goings of the mind. And we need this kind of stopping of our minds in order to see clearly. We can't really noticed very much when when there's a frenzy. And for probably for many of us, we've come from a period of a lot of work, a lot of activity, a lot of doing, some of it probably quite wonderful, but it's still hard, even in the midst of wonderful activity, really to see clearly in a deeper way, to know our direction, or to know sometimes who we are, or to know more fully some of our deeper patterns or our deeper longings. And so we need to stop physically and we need, in in a way, to learn how to stop all the, if not stop, uh, slow down, all the intense activity of the mind. And many of us, I'm sure, have found today that still body doesn't equal still mind. Has anyone found that? a handful, (laughs) and and maybe maybe a big handful. And it's, it's very natural, and it's somewhat, you know, it can be somewhat sobering. Here it is. In daily life, there's always a lot to think about, right? There's always, you know, I have to do this, plan this. You know, contemporary life is often very complicated. And here it's very, very simple, but the mind keeps on being complicated. Why is that? I have no answer. It just happens. (laughs) Actually, there are answers. It's the momentum, really. It's habit. It's it's how we keep on um, working like that. And so in so many traditions around the world, there's this uh, ancient practice of coming into the silence and the stillness in order to see more deeply. Shamans go off into the wilderness, hermits, live in solitude, in order to touch the depths more fully. And we do that in our way on this retreat. There's this pattern that we find in so many different cultures and in so many people who have touched the depths, this pattern of going into the silence, going into, in some way, going into we're going, let's say, out of the habits, out of the ordinary activities for the sake of renewal and for the sake of creativity. The great historian Arnold Toynbee calls it the cycle of um, retreat and return. He says it's actually a dynamic for a great deal of what's most beautiful in human culture is that ability to leave and to come back renewed. In a sense, we have, to, uh, we have to stop in order to move again. We need to be, um, in, a, in a sense, silent in order to speak with more depth or creativity. So just like the earth, we come to greater stillness here. We can almost imitate the earth sometimes. You can feel sitting here, I'm like a shrub or a tree. You know, just, and just like that, I'm like the tree out in the forest here, just sitting and letting my inner process generate the growth of the spring, just like the tree. And there's also a wonderful sense of the darkness as an opening to the unknown, which is also so much a part of our practice. And it's a challenging part that we often come to our practice and we may have had some wonderful experiences and we don't really come with an attitude of openness, we come with an attitude of, let's duplicate that experience from the last retreat or the last sitting. Does anyone do this? Again, just to, oh, okay, becoming more honest as, we, as the talk goes on <laughs> uh, <laughs> or more willing to raise your hand. Um, and we we often uh, actually are not quite so open. We want to find uh, a certain peace, which is understandable because to find a peace or a calm or a, a pleasure, a bliss in the body and in our in our being is wonderful. It's definitely tremendous benefit of this meditation. But actually, the deeper meaning is an openness that indicates freedom. It's that ability to be there and be present with any experience that comes. As I think I mentioned uh, last night, the deeper meaning of this practice is not about having this or that state occur. Sorry, it's not about finding peace. So anyone who feels you were informed improperly about the retreat and want to leave, and I don't know about the money back, but <laughs> but it really isn't actually about, um, ultimately, about be having this or that state. Really, the deeper meaning of our practice is to be with whatever's happening and to be able to respond wisely. That's it, moment to moment in all the parts of our life. And so there's this tremendous value of, with our practice, simply being willing to see what's happening and to know what's happening. John mentioned this sense of uh, beginner's mind. That is this wonderful phrase from um, Suzuki Roshi, who taught at the San Francisco Zen Center. And probably many of you know this uh, book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. And I wanted just to read you some about this sense of Beginner's Mind. People say that practicing Zen, and we might say practicing meditation, is difficult, but there is a misunderstanding as to why. It's not difficult because it is hard to sit cross-legged position or to attain enlightenment. It is difficult because it's hard to keep our mind pure and our practice pure in a fundamental sense. And that purity is about this quality of openness. In Japan, we have the phrase Shoshin, which means beginner's mind. The goal of practice is always to keep our beginner's mind. Suppose you recite the Prajna Paramita Sutra only once. It might be a very good recitation, but what would happen to you if you recited it twice, or three times, or four times, or more? You might easily lose your original attitude. The same thing will happen in other practices. For a while, you will keep your beginner's mind, but if you continue to practice one, two, or three years or more, although you may improve some, you are liable to lose the limitless meaning of original mind or beginner's mind. And so we want to cultivate that sense of unknowing, and I mentioned in one of the groups this afternoon that a wonderful practice, especially once there's some stabilization, is just to say at the beginning of a sitting, I am willing to be present with whatever happens, and I will open to whatever happens, to really uh, set that as an intention. And so we can notice the beautiful states, and we can notice the challenging states. We want especially, really, to be with experience in a direct way. And it's really the heart of what mindfulness is, is to have us be present with whatever's happening in a very direct way. So we we are with, as, as John was guiding us this morning, we can be with the experiences of the body, of our bodies, be with the sensations, be with what's happening in our bodies. We can be with our emotions. We can be with the sense of the pleasant or unpleasant quality of experience. And we can be with our thoughts and notice them. We can also notice when stories arise that take us away for quite a while. And one of the great powers and benefits of our practice is to be able really to notice stories more clearly. You know, and some stories are helpful and beneficial, but a lot of stories are... Broad generalizations made on the basis of scant evidence. (laughs) Often in ways that actually bring more distress. And we may have noticed them today. We may have stories of, I'm not a good meditator. I should have taken these three days and stayed at a luxury hotel. My meditation for this afternoon wasn't as I wanted it to be. Therefore, I should change to Sufism. <laughs> <laughs> Sufi dancing. That's very different. So we can, I'm, I'm citing more humorous stories. Of course, we have stories that actually scare us, that are negative stories about ourselves. And that we come to see more clearly. And that actually those stories take us out of the not knowing, take us out of the openness. And it's really crucial to notice those stories. And there are typically a lot of stories the first day. And we, again, the stories um, could be positive, they could be, oh, this meditation is really so cool. I'm ready to I'm ready to become a monk or nun. Or Sign me up. And there could be something quite beautiful in that, but we also can get ahead of ourselves. Or we can tell stories about whatever, someone else in the hall that we haven't actually talked with but might possibly be an appropriate match. <laughs> Such stories occur. And they're even sometimes they, they even come true. We probably each could tell a bunch of our own stories, because when you're on retreat a lot, you have a lot of those kind of stories, or most people do. It doesn't matter if you're married or whatever. The stories still happen. And so we find those stories, and we're able to increasingly able to notice them earlier on, so that we can really stay with our direct experience. Again, it's one of the life-saving qualities of this practice that we can notice those stories earlier. And we we really train here. And then we can bring that out into our daily lives. And so we learn how to be present and to sit with not knowing. To sit just with openness, to sit without necessarily having something that wraps it all together. We sit with the unknown. We sit with, I don't know how this retreat's going, but I want to just stay with it. And something that we learn as, as we do more practice, it's really a kind of faith in our, the unfolding of our very nature. And it's not easy to do. It's not easy to sit with the unknown, especially when it's challenging or difficult. You know? And it really takes a kind of um, faith and confidence There's a beautiful story that I learned about Gandhi that uh, occurred about 1929 or so, 1929 or 30, when there was a kind of lull in the Indian independence movement. A number of people were having doubts about nonviolence. There was a certain rise of terrorist activity in India at that time. And people didn't know what to do. And Gandhi didn't know what to do. And he said, I don't know what to do right now. And he decided just to go to his home in an ashram on the, um, by a river, I think the Sabarmati River in India. And people were really pressuring him. They say, you're supposed to know what to do. You're Gandhi. You know, Get with it be a better Gandhi, or whatever they were saying. They were really pressuring him. And he said, no, I don't know what to do. And he said, but I know that I will know what to do. And so he sat just in his home, and he looked out at the river. And he sat, and he meditated, he was quiet. And the weeks went by, and visitors would come, and they would ask him, and he said, I don't know what will happen. Happen, but I know that I have to hear the inner voice to know what to do. And he refused to act without really hearing something authentic. And after six weeks, he said, I have heard the inner voice. I know what to do. And his answer was to lead a march of people to the ocean, where they would make salt. Against the laws of the British, who said, only we can make salt, and salt necessary for the preservation of food at that time. So it was a a very unjust monopoly. And he went and he had this march, which started, I think, with 50 or 60 people. And by the time it got to the ocean, which was about 250 miles away, there were 10,000 people drawing people as it went on. And they got to the ocean and they made salt. And they started a um, movement of making salt which spread and spread and spread and resulted in a huge number of arrests. And the British eventually came down very hard and were very brutal. And it was a kind of a turning point in the movement. It really was a statement that in in a sense, especially because of the brutality it broke the legitimacy of the British occupation in many people's eyes and in many eyes in the world. And it came out of that not knowing, that waiting. And I know that from my own experience. There have been several times in my life when I haven't known what to do for a next phase of my life. And I've had the privilege quite a few times, several times, of just stopping and not doing anything and wanting to go more deeply about um, the last one that I, was about 10 years ago and I had been doing a lot of um, teaching at a graduate school and I was, very, I was very busy, I was doing a lot of writing and teaching and I was feeling like I was not in touch with what I most wanted to do. And I knew, um, I knew that I had to stop. And so I arranged to do very little work for a year, which of course is a privilege. Not everyone can do that. And I stopped most of my work. I stopped most of my activities. I dropped out of virtually every activity I was connected with. And people told me I was um, a co-editor of a journal. I dropped out of that. People told me the journal would fall apart without me. But I, 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 I didn't go back. And I dropped out of organizations I was part of. And I just dropped virtually everything. And I... Part of the time I did retreats, I think in about a year, I did probably four months on retreat, which was quite important. And I knew that I had to just listen and let something come more from the depths. And it was often hard. It was sometimes scary, as you could imagine, letting go of structure. Not so easy, you know, and who am I? Who am I without these activities? But I had some confidence that I had to know more authentically. And actually, in an intellectual way, I somewhat knew what would come in the terms of activity. But I didn't know in my guts. And I had to have that be real in my actual being, not just in my intellectual understanding. And it took quite a while, but it was quite a a process. And by about nine months into it, I had a much clearer sense of direction. And it really started a kind of um, phase, (coughs) which I'm still in. And I'm really, uh, so I love that process of just giving that space of opening to see what comes next. It's not so easy. It doesn't have to be a year. It can be a retreat. It can be a few weeks. It can be a uh, part of one's life. But sometimes we have to do that. And what I love about our practice is that we really do that in a way every time we sit, every time we walk. And when we practice daily, let's say outside of the retreat, we're really inviting the unknown every day. Or if we do retreats, we're in in a sense inviting the unknown for that period of time. We're really living with the mysterious and coming in more contact with what's mysterious. I think it gives tremendous vitality. It really helps us deepen. And yet it's not so easy. You know, like I mentioned, I experienced periods during that time when it was scary, when I felt without structure, when I felt adrift. And sometimes we have to just be with those periods in order to touch something more deeply. The third aspect of darkness that really is connected with those challenges is the the way that uh, darkness is a metaphor for being with the difficult. We sometimes use, we talk about dark periods also in that way, that this is a dark period because it's challenging, because it's difficult. And the first day of a retreat brings out some of those challenges. You know, we have all these difficulties. Sometimes they feel small, sometimes they feel bigger, but we sit with a certain kind of darkness the first day in the sense of difficulties. We sit sometimes... um, I think uh, I heard quite a few people use the metaphor of being in the fog, being in a fog, or sometimes we're, we're sleepy. You know, there's a lot can be a lot of sleepiness the first. How many people have felt somewhat sleepy part of the day? More than all the others. <laughs> you know, and it's completely natural. It doesn't indicate that you should take up Sufi dancing. <laughs> um, although sometimes that can be a good balance. But it's really there for a lot of very experienced people. We can have meditated for 20 years and done 50 retreats, and we come on the first day of the retreat and we may be sleepy. So not something to worry about, Uh, but it's one of the challenges that we have the first day. And there are ways of working with all these challenges. For sleepiness, we can sometimes, it's just as John was saying, sometimes it's because we need a nap. And we really can take care of ourselves in that way. A lot of times the sleepiness is not because of needing a nap. It's because we're not so familiar with the silence, or it's a really abrupt change from the busyness. And the mind just says, what is this? Or says, the only thing I associate with closing my eyes is... fill in the blank, you know, is uh, something that's usually done in a horizontal position, but that... As we meditate more, we learn it can be done quite well sitting upright. <laughs> um, it's one of the fringe benefits of meditation. You're more prepared for those long bus rides. <laughs> if anyone takes long bus rides six days, I don't know how many do. But we can, we can work with the sleepiness. Sometimes it's that the energy, isn't high enough. There's an imbalance. We have uh, not enough energy. And so we can do something like uh, in the walking, we can walk a little more vigorously. Or maybe we can do some yoga right before the sitting to kind of move the energy around or do qigong or something like that. Or sometimes we can um, stand up in the, sit, in, in the sitting period. That's okay. It's standing is honorary sitting in a way. That was a joke. <laughs> 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 um, so we can we can do that, so there's sleepiness that comes, there's restlessness that comes. you know sometimes there's restlessness, kind of for the opposite reason there's restlessness because there's more energy and not enough concentration, and so we can develop our concentration more. so we can often feel restless the first day, a lot of energy moving around we can We can find that there's a lot of desire or aversion. we can find that we really Really, are, really gravitate to the meals, or to the moment the bell rings. You know, and that there can be a lot of desire that just is there in our system, that just comes. And we can have aversion also. We can really not like the sitting where our mind wanders, or the sitting where we feel in the fog. We can have a lot of aversion, saying, "I don't like this. Let's get rid of this." And the answer, in part, is just to be with it and to bring the mindfulness even to the restlessness, even to the aversion. To be with that. You know, when there's restlessness, we can work with concentration. When there's desire or aversion, the best tool really is just to be present with it, to be mindful, to see, to notice more clearly. To use it as an opportunity to see what is this about. Because in a way what we are offered with this kind of practice is we get to look at all of what makes us human in a way that we might not have looked at it before. We get to look at aversion or desire or anger or stories or fears or joy or happiness. And we get to be with it without trying to make anything happen, just to be with it, just to be present. We get to have our meals and just be with the taste, you know. It it really can feel... Uh, quite wonderful, often like revelations, like I'm looking at this human life more fully. Some of it easy, some of it difficult. There's a fundamental teaching, which is really crucial to understanding this sense of being with the dark as going into the difficult. And it's probably, it's almost my favorite teaching from the historical Buddha, from Gautama Buddha. And it's a teaching which I think really goes very, very deeply in a very quick way, and I think a quite accessible way. It's a teaching called the teaching of the two arrows. And it's in a way, it's a very quick version of the four noble truths, which many of you know. And the teaching of the two arrows has to do with how we can be with what's unpleasant, how we can be with what's difficult. And the teaching is this. We all are shot, as it were, by an arrow. And that's the arrow of unpleasant experiences. It's the arrow we might call the arrow of pain. And we all have that. That to be human is to be vulnerable to pain. It's to be vulnerable in our bodies, not just to something necessarily really hugely painful, but just to the discomfort of the knee getting, um, the knee hurting, or the unpleasant feelings of uh, the stomach when, it, when we're hungry, and just very ordinary and even minor kinds of unpleasant experiences. We all have that first arrow. We all receive that first arrow, and sometimes the pain is a lot. Sometimes it's the pain of a lot of physical pain. Or there can also be emotional pain. To be human and to have a heart is to be vulnerable to emotional pain. We all experience that. We all may have the pain of being treated unfairly or unjustly. And that's something that we all experience. And in this teaching, the Buddha asks, what differentiates a practitioner from a non-practitioner? And his answer is really fundamental to our whole way of being with what's difficult. His answer was that a non-practitioner tends, because of the first arrow, to shoot a second arrow. And I would say either at oneself or another. In other words, I have unpleasant experiences. I react. And I shoot a second arrow at myself or others. And what does that look like? In the meditation, as we're sitting, it could be what happens when I feel an unpleasant physical sensation and I tense around it. And I tense and actually can perhaps feel more pain when I tense around it, I contract. I've heard from doctors that 80% of what patients experience as pain is not the original stimulus, but the reaction or the contraction to pain. That's why meditation is so powerful in a medical context. People can learn just to be with the 20%, which is hard enough, without adding the 80%. That's shooting the second arrow. There's contraction. Or we shoot the second arrow, maybe in a more obvious way, when I have an experience, let's say I have an interaction with someone, and that person says something that's mean-spirited. And what do I do? I say something mean-spirited right back. <laughs> That's the second arrow. A lot of our conflicts, maybe most of our conflicts, are what we might call second arrow affairs, mutual shooting of second arrows at each other. That's why a lot of what peacemakers do is they bring us back to the original experience, even if it's hard. They bring us back and, as Thich Hans says, a peacemaker brings the suffering of one side to the other side and vice versa. So we learn how to do that. We learn how to be with, with the pain. So a lot of conflicts are about reactions to previous pain. So much of what we find as violent conflict in the war, in wars and in the world, is about, I have had pain done to me, therefore I do pain to you. As if that would stop things. It's almost a compulsive tendency. You know, I can do no other. If I feel that kind of pain, I can sometimes do no other. I remember there was a Bill Moyer show which showed um, teenage murderers. And a large percentage of them were saying, I was hurting so much, I wanted someone else to feel how bad it was. And the person I killed was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And it came out of my pain. So, so much in the world are just these cycles of pain. And so it's revolutionary to take the second course uh, that the Buddha says is characteristic of practitioners, which is to learn not to shoot the second arrow. Which means to be able to be with, with what's unpleasant or painful without shooting the second arrow. Not so easy. It means to be able to be with what's unpleasant physically, and here in our context here, we learn that. Uh, we, ha- we learn to have a certain amount of our practice is necessarily with unpleasant physical sensations or emotions or thoughts. I wish that it was otherwise, but that really is part of this practice. And we do counsel that we, you know, where there's... we don't counsel sitting with physical pain when there's a potential of damage to the body. Not masochistic in that way, but a lot of our ordinary um, unpleasant sensations is not causing harm. And the general guideline we use, if there's pain in a part of our body and we sit with it and it's still there half an hour after we sat, then we want to give attention to it and we don't want to go there. And if it just immediately leaves when we get up, then... It's actually something we can sit with to a certain extent. And we can definitely also learn to sit with difficult emotions and to be present with them. It's a big part of this practice. And it really is this going into the difficult, learning how to be with the difficult. And I think it's really a secret of healing, is to be able to do that. It's a secret of healing interpersonal conflicts, It's a secret of healing greater conflicts. That same principle, if you think about it, is at the core of what uh, Gandhi and Martin Luther King did. It's really at the core of nonviolence. Nonviolence says what? It says, (laughs) we have received oppression. We have received pain. We will not pass on the pain in turn. We will stop the cycles of pain with love. Completely revolutionary, right? Challenging. Um, But that's really the core, I think, of how transformation occurs, whether it's individual, relational, or collective. And so we practice that. So I think as we practice that, we get better, potentially, at all these other parts of our lives. Practice being with your knee pain for 20 minutes in a sitting will very much improve your intimate relationships. That's, that's my teaching, not the Buddha's. <laughs> so, but I, th- I think you probably can see the connection, right? It, it's, it's an interesting learning. And so we learn how to do that. We learn how to be with what's, with what's difficult. And we practice that. It's a, it's a significant part. We also learn how to be with what's beautiful and to cultivate that. But it's undeniable that part of our practice And one of the places where it's actually in our daily lives is most obviously fruitful, is how we can be more and more skillful with what's difficult. It's a big part of our practice. And it really suggests the last aspect of uh, being with the darkness, which is the way that being with the darkness can be creative, can be generative, can be fertile, can really uh, yield the light. Can lead to um, learning can lead to uh, transformation. I think it 's just in the way that interestingly the you know it can look like the trees are not doing too much right now they're sitting around still, not moving a lot, not reading any books, you know, and yet um, there's the trees look like nothing's happening, but we kind of know that they're, you know, I imagine if we look inside, there's an incredible amount of stuff happening that's getting ready for new growth, that's getting ready for the coming of the spring. And so it's in the midst of the darkness, there we're getting ready for what comes out of the darkness. And there are these ways that, in a sense, the, the darkness is generative. I think it also connects with a way that our practice can uh, balance masculine and feminine. In a sense, I think the overemphasis on the light can be connected with an overemphasis on the masculine or on the kind of the striving of the, of the everything being light and beautiful and wonderful. And there's something about the generative aspect of new growth coming out of darkness. And I think in, in Tibetan tradition, there's some very interesting teachings related to this, that, that um, in Tibetan tradition, the Dakini, the, one of the female enlightenment figures, is a figure that comes at twilight, that comes in this time of transition between dark and light, and offers teachings. And there are a lot of amazing stories in the Tibetan tradition of Dakini's offering um, teachings that in some sense come out of the darkness. Some of it's mysterious. I know in Western traditions, there is this old sense of often that those who live in darkness, literally, those who are blind, are often the great seers. I know in Greek tradition, a very strong emphasis And I was thinking about this because my father was um, blind the last 25 years of his life. And, And I often spent time with him. And I remember one time I helped him on a retreat that was about this length. He was registered for the retreat. And I was his eyes, so to speak. And I helped him around. And I really had a sense of more of what it was like to live without sight. And I know that in his life, after his sight went there was a tremendous I think expansion I would say of his emotions and his heart when the sight wasn't there something else grew stronger sort of a sensitivity and a a compassion maybe and so we can really trust in that sense of unknowing, that that light may come out of it. Just as in the Gandhi story, where Gandhi could stay with the unknown and have trust that something would come out of it. It's a big part of our practice. We stay with the unknown, we stay with the difficult, and over time a greater faith develops that this is part of the generative process. There's a beautiful Section. Let me see where this is. There's a section in um, in the work of uh, Rilke. Let me see. Some of you may know his uh, letters to a young poet. Beautiful lines there, and I always have enjoyed it. the The young uh, The young poet was 21 years old, and Rilke gave this advice to the young poet. Rilke was like 29. Uh, so like letter, you know, we would say letters from a young poet to a young poet. <laughs> but he, the, the young poet was very, really wanted all the answers. And Rilke wrote these famous lines about being patient with what's unresolved. And he, some of you may know this. It says, Rilke said, have patience with everything that remains unsolved in your heart. Try to love the questions themselves, like locked rooms and like books written in the foreign language. Do not now look for the answers. They cannot be given to you because you could not live them. For it's a question of experiencing everything, of living everything. At present, you need to to live the questions. Perhaps you will gradually, without even noticing it, and and your self-experience finally the answer some distant day. So to actually be with that generative process of being with the unknown, with the questions... And out of that process of the dark, in so many traditions comes the light, comes the understanding, comes the opening. In Christian tradition, St. John of the Cross talks about living through the dark night of the soul as a necessary part of spiritual awakening. The shaman in indigenous traditions goes into, in a sense, the, the dismemberment of the self and the whole the deconstruction of the self and comes back in a new integrated way, goes through this hard time, this unknown time, and comes back with something new. There's a poem of how, that I want to read from Japanese poet uh, from the 15th century, from Muso Soseki, uh, about the life of the Buddha and about how he stayed with the darkness and ultimately it brought light. This is called Buddha's Satori, from about six centuries ago. For six years, sitting alone, still as a snake, in a stalk of bamboo, with no family but the ice on the snow mountain. Last night, seeing the empty sky fly into pieces, he shook the morning star awake and kept it in his eyes. Last night, seeing the empty sky fly into pieces, he shook the morning star awake and kept it in his eyes. And so I think as we work with this balance of darkness and light, I think we come to see how the darkness and light really interpenetrate each other. That we, sometimes our light, our knowing, our clarity, sometimes has a shadow, sometimes has darkness, sometimes has compulsion or, or attachment. And sometimes our darkness has the... Possibility of light has the possibility of something bright and beautiful coming out of it, and so I think we come to see how there can be, in a sense, uh, light inside the dark, and dark inside the light, and how we can, in a sense, we need to be familiar with both of them, and to allow the dark to be present, and to cultivate the light. You know, which we're doing also when we bring about when we cultivate mindfulness and cultivate loving-kindness. These are in a way where we're deliberately cultivating the light, cultivating a knowing, a clarity. So I think I want to end with another poem, and this is from uh, Pablo Neruda. And this is uh, a poem about that balance of uh, darkness and light, and it really, I think, describes what we do uh, in our practice at the solstice, at this retreat. If each day falls inside each night, there exists a well where clarity is imprisoned. We need to sit on the rim of the well of darkness and fish for fallen light with patience. If each day falls inside each night, There exists the well where clarity is imprisoned. We need to sit on the rim of the well of darkness and fish for fallen light with patience. Let's just sit for a few moments. We need to sit on the rim of the well of darkness and fish for fallen light with patience.